Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. What's so significant about the table of nations recorded in the book of Genesis? Well, on today's program with Dr. Newfeld, we'll learn about this unique genealogy. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 10 with a message called God Governs the Nations, Part 1. In our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have derived at Genesis 10, which is a chapter that most of us just skip over. That's because it's a chapter that deals with genealogical lists of people long since forgotten, people who lived in parts of the world whose place names have changed. So, for instance, we are told of people like Elmadad and Shelef and a man named Hatsar Maveth, who lived in the territory that extended from Misha in the direction of Sefer. We can hardly pronounce the names of these people, and since the places they once lived are places the majority of us have never, nor will we ever visit, it's much easier to view Genesis 10 as a way of saying, well, time went on, people came and went, places far away, and eventually among the community of nations, God raised up a man named Abraham, and so begins the story of God's chosen people, and that's why it's easy to view Genesis 10 as a kind of a hallway that leads from one great drama, the drama of the wicked of the human race followed by a universal flood to the next great drama when the special revelation of God will lead to the creation of a nation called Israel. And so we hurry through the hallway and very quickly get to the next drama, hardly noticing the treasures in the hallway. And in truth, that's exactly what Genesis 10 is. It is a kind of hallway leading from one drama to the next. But before we so quickly pass Genesis 10 by, we would be well served to try to understand why the passage was written in the first place. Remember that we have called this entire section, He Made Me Human. We've traced the story of the creation of the first human couple made in the image of God. We've noticed the divine mandate. Human beings created to rule over creation in obedience to their creator. We've noticed the devastation of the fall when the human race rebelled, attempting to become gods rather than worship the one true God. And we've noticed how the effects of the fall created a civilization of violence and wickedness, resulting in a global flood and the destruction of all flesh, and the exception of Noah and his family. And then as Noah and his family emerge from the ark, sin is felt again. One of Noah's sons, Ham, commits an evil sexual act, resulting in the division of the family, and hardly has humanity started again when deep divisions again form in the human race. Even though we are in the image of God with all the dignity and potential surrounding those words, sin, rebellion, alienation from God resulting in animosity are still there. And that's where Genesis 10 fits in. Now, the chapter begins with this line. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then from verses 2 to 5, we have the sons of Japheth. And then in verses 6 to 20, we have the sons of Ham, a list far more detailed than the listing of the descendants of Japheth. And finally, from verses 21 to 31, we have the descendants of Shem. And then the last verse in the chapter, verse 32, summarizes the entire chapter. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad after the flood. You know, it's for this reason that Genesis 10 has often been called the table of the nations, with the idea that every single human being can trace their ancestors back to one of Noah's three sons. 
Now, before we look at some of the details I see behind this story, the truth that God governs not only the nations of the earth, but the development of the nations of the earth is central here. The psalmist, one of the sons of Korah, will say in Psalm 47, verses 7 to 9, For God is king of all the earth. Sing to him a song of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated in his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. See, God governs the nations. I think it's important to hear that. See, many of us are accustomed to saying that God governs the lives of those who submit to him or that God governs his church, but we must also say that he governs the nations. Nothing is outside of his authority. God governs Canada, the United States, Iraq, and all other nations are equally under his control. And that might seem strange to many because many of us have the idea that things are out of control. We have a theology that says that when Christ comes again, then things will again be in God's control. But as of now, they are under the control of evil. But the psalmist disagrees. He says that God is king of the nations right now. And so today, from Genesis 10 and then tomorrow, from Genesis 11, we're going to see how God governs the nations. We notice that at the end of the flood, God had made a covenant with the nations. He set a rainbow in the sky as a sign that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. He promised that in spite of the fact that human beings and whole civilizations, nations, have a bent towards evil, God has promised to keep evil in check and to allow good, kindness, and love to be a part of our experience in this world. But how is God accomplishing this? These last two chapters in our study of Genesis provide us with some surprising answers. For our purposes, we will concentrate today on Genesis 10. And Genesis 10 is fascinating. That's because all racial, cultural, and geographical differences between all peoples had their starting point right here. Now let's notice several things. This is an incomplete list of the nations. For instance, verse 2 gives us seven sons of Japheth, but only two of these sons have their descendants listed. See, under close examination, we find out that there are exactly 70 people listed in this chapter. And what we've learned from Genesis and genealogy so far, we should not be surprised. Seven is the number of perfection, and thus these 70 names are a perfect representation of all the nations of the earth. We should also notice that the sons of Japheth include those people that will eventually inhabit the nation of Turkey, the Greeks, northwest Iran, the Medes, and the north of the Black Sea and into Europe. Now, if that's where you're from, chances are that you come from the line of Japheth. I, for instance, am of European descent, and I therefore assume that I am one of the descendants of Japheth. Now, the sons of Han from the list in verses 6 to 20 include the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Philistines, and the Canaanites, all ancient enemies of Israel. In essence, the entire biblical drama centers to some extent around the conflict with the sons of Ham. We remember that Ham saw his father's nakedness and in some way committed an indecent act and that Noah cursed him. But the cursing does not fall on all the sons of Ham, but very specifically on the line of Canaan. Now, since the sons of Ham form a much larger and a more detailed list than the sons of Japheth, we notice that the drama will surround only two sons of Noah. 
We also notice that in the middle of the names mentioned, there is a break in the genealogy with an explanation which will take shape as the story of the Bible progresses. And so in verse 6, we're told that there are four sons of Ham. They are Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then the genealogy of chapter 10 focuses on only one of those sons, Cush. I'm reading from verses 8 to 11. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From the land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Now, notice several things. The name Nimrod is of great interest. His name is associated with two great cities, Babylon and Nineveh. Later in the drama of the Bible, the Ninevites would destroy the north of Israel and deport 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Babylon, after those events, would destroy Judah and Jerusalem, burning the temple and deporting the Jews to Babylon, where, as many of you know, we have the count of the faithfulness of Daniel. What Genesis 10 tells us is of a man whose name is Nimrod, whose aggression creates great cities, which are the antithesis of what God desired. He is the same kind of person as Lamech was, son of Cain, whose cities led to the violent conditions before the flood. Lamech, you'll remember, boasted of killing a man who injured him and boasted that he would avenge anyone who tried to harm him. And Nimrod represents that same spirit after the flood. But please also notice that Nimrod represents but one of the four branches of the sons of Ham. And notice also that the kingdoms of Nimrod, Babylon, and Nineveh in Iraq, although still horribly violent places today, have lost their ability to dominate the world. And when we come back, we'll see just how significant that is and how this is a part of God's plan to govern the world. In this introduction, I think we're discovering that there's much more to this genealogy in chapter 10 than what we may have thought. As we begin to unpack the list of names recorded here and the nations that came from them, there's an important theme not to be missed. God indeed is the ruler of all nations back then and today. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will provide more insight into how God's sovereignty is revealed through the development of the nations. Back to the Bible Canada, it's our hope that your walk with Christ would be strengthened and encouraged through the wide variety of resources made available through so many different mediums to ensure Bible teaching you can trust is freely accessible to those who desire to know the Bible and our Lord more deeply. One listener wrote, it is a joy to listen to Dr. Newfeld and the staff of Back to the Bible Canada as they faithfully teach the Bible daily. It's a real blessing to hear the word daily for encouragement and exhortation. If you feel blessed by this ministry, can we ask you to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $409,000? This year, a few friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $100,000 to make this campaign a success. To make your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
The last of the list in Genesis 10 from verses 21 to 31 are the descendants of Shem. Verse 21 begins this way, To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Now clearly, although there are six sons of Shem, eventually the attention will be directed at Eber. Verse 25 tells us, To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. See, most likely that refers to the incident of the Tower of Babel, which we're going to discuss tomorrow. But for now, we should notice that the word Hebrew is derived from the word Eber. And so as we're going to see that with Eber will eventually come when we get to Genesis 11, a man named Terah, who's a pagan worshiper of the sun, moon, and the stars. But Terah will have three sons, and one of them will be named Abram, whom God will call out of paganism to be the father of Israel and ultimately the ancestor of Jesus Christ, the savior of the entire human race, taking for himself an elect company of men and women and making a chosen people from the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Savior would unify the lost and broken sons of humanity. But I fear we're getting far too far ahead of ourselves. But that's the drama behind Genesis 10. It first tells us that God, in his sovereign care, was watching over the development of the nations. It is interesting to me that only the Bible, of all the ancient religious texts, actually contains a list of the development of the nations. See, other ancient lists tell of people of interest, but not peoples of the whole world. The Bible, therefore, is unique, for it tells us of a God who is interested in all the nations, all the world, a God who sent his Son for all people, groups, and ethnic identities. God superintends the peoples of the world and is intensely interested in all of them. In fact, a close study of this text points out that the nation of Israel is not even mentioned in Genesis 10. Yes, Eber is mentioned and highlighted. Israel is but one of the many descendants of Eber. And from that, when we get to Genesis 12, we will learn that Israel has a unique role to play among all the nations, but that should not lead us to believe that God is unconcerned with the rest of the world. The application from Genesis 10 is clear. Wherever you come from, whether from Asia or from Africa or Europe, from the island peoples of the earth, wherever, God is keenly interested in not only you personally, but your people group, your language, your culture, and your history. The God of the Bible has guided your ancestors in the past, and we can take from this principle and make a key observation. God gave the nations their place of inheritance. He was the one who determined where people would live. Listen to what Scripture says about that. Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples. Or listen to what God says to the prophet Amos, a word that seems almost startling to our ears. I'm reading from Amos 9, verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, the Arameans from Kir? See, the point here is not only did God move Israel to the promised land, he moves all the peoples of the earth to their nations. I assume from that that our nation, Canada, a new nation made up from peoples all over the earth, is even now being formed by the preset, preordained, sovereign hand of God. 
And from that, we must ask, why does God create nations the way that he does? And why this division of humanity in the way we now see it? If God, in Genesis 10, is telling us how he rules the nations, how does this assigning nations their place demonstrate God's rule over the nations? I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul arriving in Athens, giving his now famous speech about the unknown God to the philosophers and leading citizens of that city. Listen carefully to his words as they're recorded by Luke in Acts 17, 26 to 28. Paul is encouraging the Athenians to listen to the gospel of Jesus and, interestingly enough, starts out his discourse from, yeah, you guessed it, Genesis chapter 10. Here is what he says. He says, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time is set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So to put it in our own words, God has overseen the history of nations so that at just the right time, he might present the truth of his presence to them. See, missionaries will often tell you that God prepares entire cultures in advance for the reception of the gospel. See, those of you who are aware of the history of the nation of of China might be aware that perhaps the greatest revival in world history is presently happening in that great nation. God has arranged this history for just such a moment. Some estimates state that there are some 10 million people coming to Christ in China every year. Or think about the former Soviet Union. 70 years of communism and official state-sanctioned atheism has left people hungering for spiritual truth. Or think about India. You know, some time ago I was reading a report and it told about the Dalit people, some of whom are turning to Christ. The Dalits are lower in status than the untouchables, but they have found in Christ that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are one in Christ. Or watch what happens in Indonesia today. We may be on the verge of a great movement to Christ there. In fact, we are. In Iran and some other Islamic nations, there is in this moment in history, partially due to Islamic extremism and Islamic rule, a heart's cry for something better than what they have. People are turning to Christ because they cannot abide the severe hand of Islamic Sharia. In unique ways, tailor-made for the unique development of nations. God prepares people, and when the time is right, an entire people group is prepared to hear and then embrace the gospel. That's also true in Canada. Like the United States and other immigrant nations, we are living in fascinating times. In Canada, the times of the Europeans are drawing to an end low birth rates, and in many places, a wholesale abandonment of the life of God has led to aimlessness. And as people from all over the world come to our shores, we wonder what this might mean. Even though it's much too soon to tell yet, one thing is clear. Just as many were predicting the end of the Christian church in this country because of a massive apostasy among those of European descent, have come people from nations all around the world, some of which are coming into the kingdom. And in that, I hear echoes of Genesis 10 and Paul's words in Acts 17. God has determined times set for people groups and the exact places where they should live so that men should seek him and reach out to him. 
And by the way, this is one of the reasons I never, like some, push the panic button when it comes to immigration trends, but rather view it with a sense of curiosity. It's not always good, but it might be. Perhaps I think this is the moment in which God is moving people so that more should seek him and reach out to him. But of course I'm not naive. Nations make decisions all the time which determine their spiritual future, and that spiritual future sometimes leads to evil places. That's what happened in the development of Nineveh and Babylon, and sometimes a great spiritual darkness will descend on the development of an entire nation. That has happened often, and it's the great danger in our day. But when we come to Genesis 11, we will see that God has so determined that a great spiritual darkness should not descend on the entire human race. God's covenant with Noah stands. He will never allow conditions to so degenerate as to necessitate a flood. He will never allow the godly seed to be wiped out. And when tomorrow we look at the last installment of our study in Genesis 1 to 11, we will see how it is that God uses the nations to ensure that the promises made to Noah will never fail. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we'd want to pray very specifically for the nation that we're a part of, especially the nation of Canada. Heavenly Father, even though we do know that there are times when you have allowed nations to lapse into darkness, we also know, O Lord God, that there are times in which you have allowed the preaching of your gospel to revive an entire nation. May this be just such a time, O Lord God. Rise up your people, rouse us to seek you afresh. Come, Holy Spirit, and enliven us and enlighten us afresh so that your gospel might again be heard in this nation so that many would find their way to truth. In Jesus' name. After this fascinating study, I hope we'll read Genesis 10 in a different light as we see God's hand in shaping all of the nations of the world. We've learned why it's important not to skip over this transitional chapter in Genesis, which sheds valuable light on the descendants of Noah that came after the flood. Perhaps this study has helped you to see more clearly that we're living in a world where God is actively moving and drawing people of all races to himself. Such an important reminder when we're often tempted to despair and give up hope. But God has had a plan from the very beginning. Well, don't miss our conclusion to this series tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld will share part two of God Governs the Nations, looking at Genesis chapter 11. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada is approaching its fiscal year end, making June a financially critical month for the ministry. Over these past few years, Back to the Bible Canada has been committed to ensuring that in unpredictable times, you can rely on our Bible teaching and engagement resources to provide the comfort and guidance of God's Word. This year, to ensure we reach our goal, a few generous ministry friends who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to help us reach our year-end target of $409,000 by pledging to match every dollar you donate up to $100,000. This will double the impact of your gift. There is no better time to consider supporting this ministry than right now. We'd be so grateful for any gift you might choose to give. So for more information or to donate, call us at one 800 663 
2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.